On May 25th, 2020, George Floyd was killed by Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. Chauvin, trying to restrain Floyd, kneeled on the back of Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes, despite Floyd's pleas to let him breathe. On July 15th, New York Mayor Bill de Blasio signs the diaphragm bill, which prohibits officers from applying any force to the diaphragm, even if accidental, which includes positions like mount, back mount, and side mount. Now, on the surface, this may sound like it protects civilians, However, for anyone who has trained jiu-jitsu, they know why this bill causes more harm than good. And to explain it better than anyone else is Henner Gracie. Henner needs no introduction in the world of martial arts, but for those who don't know him, he is the grandson of Grandmaster Helio Gracie. He has devoted his life to teaching jiu-jitsu, training law enforcement, and nonviolent control for over 20 years. He's my instructor, and I personally believe that Gracie's jiu-jitsu system is the safest for both police and civilians. So first of all, Henner, I just wanted to thank you for coming on. And I want to ask why the, um, why this bill, the diaphragm bill, is a bad thing. Sure. Thanks for having me, bro. And congratulations here on the new podcast and all the good work you do. Um, so, I mean, to put it bluntly, the diaphragm, listen, and we're calling it the diaphragm bill, but it's not. There are several components to this bill that have nothing to do with the diaphragm that I agree with, right? So the legislation that has been passed in New York, one of the components to educate some of the listeners here, one of the components um, criminalizes the act of, you know, controlling a subject in a way that puts pressure on their diaphragm, uh, such that a, an officer who takes someone down or controls someone in one of the most basic ground control positions could be um, you know, convicted of a, of a crime for controlling someone in a nonviolent manner. Uh, so, you know, any reference to the diaphragm bill is, is to just that component of the bill. And the reason why it's so problematic is because we are essentially criminalizing the least violent measures that police officers have to control unruly and violent subjects. And when you criminalize Nonviolent tactics, you are incentivizing and encouraging more violent control tactics, tasers, batons, you know, even premature use of the firearm is more likely when an officer has a difficult time controlling a subject due to the fact that they simply can't mount or lay on them in any way that would apply pressure to the diaphragm. So, simply put, that's the problem. Even a good officer has to commit a crime to arrest someone in a nonviolent manner. Even the best officer would have great difficulty controlling someone who doesn't want to go to jail or doesn't want to be arrested um, without putting pressure on their torso in some way. Even the best officer would have great difficulty. Even I, if I were an officer and I had to arrest someone who was 30 pounds lighter than me, I can't say with confidence of any kind that I would be able to do that and not commit a crime as defined by New York City's new bill um, during that arrest. So I would absolutely not want to be a police officer in New York City right now. And many New York City police officers feel the same way. And they've reached out to me personally and privately and shared their feelings about early retirement consideration because it's simply not worth it. Here I am doing one of the most difficult jobs on the planet without this bill and without these restrictions on the tactics we're allowed to use. And now you're going to put us in this corner where if we lay on someone to hold them down, to wait till backup gets there, we're going to be convicted of a crime, even if the contact with the diaphragm was unintentional and no injury was caused to the subject they were dealing with. So when you're boxed in like that, you know, the real question is, what's the point? So officers are saying, hey, what's the point of arresting a guy if I'm going to become a criminal or if I'm going to be criminalized for doing so, why even arrest him? So that's the sentiment right now in New York City. What's the point of arresting? So now... The, the unintended kind of byproduct of a bill like this uh, or consequence is that you have officers that don't want to arrest criminals, criminals that should go to jail. And we all want in jail are not getting arrested because officers don't want to risk the physical contact with these criminals. So if they put any kind of resistance other than absolute compliance to verbal, you know, uh, verbal commands and, and, and really passive control tactics, uh, nonviolent kind of standing hands-on control tactics, anything that is resisted beyond that level, tackling the guy and holding him on the ground until help arrives is out of the question now for many officers because they go, no, it's not worth it. And understandably, because even if someone with my skill level wouldn't do it, 
then what do we expect from an officer who gets four, tra- four hours of training every two years? It makes no sense. So, you know, Mayor de Blasio really messed this one up on a, on a royal level. And it's not that the police chief also messed this up. You know, naturally, police need to be held accountable. There's many changes that are necessary in policing across America. However, in this case, I know, because I've spoken to them, that the command staff and the, the officers in New York City tried unsuccessfully to amend this bill so that it would not put officers in this such a compromised position. And by doing this, you're also putting civilians in greater danger because officers are more likely to resort to a taser or a baton before empty hand control tactics, as it's often referred to. And if I was being arrested, I would much rather be taken down and held to the, trapped on the bottom of the mount than to be tased or baton while standing up by multiple officers. So that's the predicament that you've created. And it's clear that this is a result of these laws being passed and, and, and pushed by you know, New York City Council representatives that have never been in a fight and have never been arrested in their lives. And they're just, you know, so other motives, there are many, but one thing is sure, they don't know, I think, the degree to which they created more danger and more and higher levels of force by seemingly trying to lower level the force in this bill, I think it has the opposite effect. Now, we're all biased, the three of us. We've all, we all train jiu-jitsu, Marcus. Uh, of course, you've been doing it before you could even walk. Um, and, and myself and our audience as well, they all train jiu-jitsu and they believe in jiu-jitsu. So it's pretty biased. But I did a poll yesterday asking, you know, is jiu-jitsu training good or bad for police? 88% said it's good. And of the 12%, I asked why. I did the questions feature on Instagram and I wanted to know why. And one of the main responses was, it was, it was a lack of understanding what jiu-jitsu was. And they said, well, jiu-jitsu, I think, chokes. And that's what we're trying to prevent, right? So let's, let's talk about how we can use jiu-jitsu without using chokes, but to deal with, a, a, to, to keep someone restrained who's belly down. How, could you walk us through step-by-step step how we could keep someone from hurting us or hurting the police officer or hurting themselves? How can we use jiu-jitsu without choking someone out, without putting the knee, the knee to the back of the neck? Sure. Yeah, just because the neck restraint, uh, choke is a misnomer, right? Because that implies plugging or obstruction of the airway, where really these are a vascular neck restraints that we do in jujitsu, right? When, I, when you do a, a, a triangle choke or a rear naked choke, it's not an actual, we're not blocking the airway. We're actually stopping the blood flow and the airway is still free and flowing. So I, we, we refer to them in the law enforcement circles and we will today as these vascular neck restraints. And because plugging the airway, no one advocates for that, right? Number one. However, when it comes to vascular neck restraints, what we need to understand is that jujitsu, although it includes several vascular neck restraints, it's not more than maybe 1% of the total technique count are vascular neck restraints. So let's not deny the 99% of jujitsu's nonviolent control, leverage-based body control tactics and weapon retention tactics. Let's not deny their, those techniques being practiced because we're fearful of one technique that also happens to fall in the arsenal of opportunity and great efficiency, you know, things that have been used over the last hundred years by my family and many others. Let's not, you know, let's not, things that matter most should not be held at the mercy of techniques which are utilized the least right so i'm for the restriction and the reduction of the use of the vascular neck restraints at the less than lethal level so if it's a lethal force situation officer can do whatever they need to do to survive and i endorse that and vascular neck restraints should be trained for use in that realm the same way vascular neck restraints are are, are sorry the same way firearms are regularly trained um, for use in a deadly force situation. They should also have this tool. Because what if the firearm malfunctions? It's a mechanical tool that has springs loaded, this, that, and many elements that could easily malfunction. And they do in regular, a day at the range, your firearm might malfunction six times shooting in an hour. So, um, but the vascular neck restraint has no, other than your effective ability to deploy it, it doesn't have a spring. It doesn't have this. It's just, you can't drop it. It's part of you at all times. So every officer should have that tool for the lethal force level. Now, any departments that want to use the vascular neck restraint at lower than lethal force, what the requirement, because it is a non-lethal technique, the vascular neck restraint is a safe intermediate force option that 
I have used and that many of our students have used and that hundreds of thousands of people have used safely and have no adverse long-term effects and have no injuries and no death and no nothing. So the 0.001% of neck restraints that lead in either due to, uh, you know, um, other medical conditions, a result of other medical conditions pre-existing or abusive use of the technique, right? That's another thing. Um, so any technique can be abused. So can the vascular neck restraint. Derek Chauvin was a prime example. You know, they're putting pressure on the neck. And after, you know, after the person is rendered unconscious, whatever the situation might be, you need to transition into aftercare procedures. But after someone's unconscious to continue playing pressure on their neck for an additional two, three, four, five minutes, this will have irreversible consequences, including, you know, brain damage, eventual death. So the point is neck restraints can be deadly, but they're only as deadly as the user is irresponsible in its use. Um, the same as a, as same as a, a ballpoint pin. I mean, it's a pin until it's a weapon, right? So that's the same with the neck restraint. It's a very safe tool, very effective. However, um, when it comes to jujitsu in terms of a belly down suspect, there are many ways to use body control. I mean, simply laying on someone, putting your hip pressure on their lower back, on their hip area, keeping their hips glued to the ground. We teach a technique called the hidden arm technique, where when the suspect is laying down with their hands hidden, you go in there and you pry the hands out with 100% leverage. Not a single strike is thrown. No neck restraint is necessary. No firearm, no taser. It's the lowest level of force method for extraction of someone's hidden arm in a prone situation. There's many YouTube videos where we demonstrate this technique, and it's, it's in a, covered in our GST, Gracie Survival Tactics program. So very easy to deal with without neck restraints. And, um, you know, uh, but I do think that the neck restraints because of how little training is provided to officers in different departments, I think the neck restraint to be used at a low, less than lethal force is a liability because you could have an officer who applies it and, you know, because he gets training once every six years for two hours on the, on the technique, he applies it, gets emotional, right? He's, you know, obviously amygdala hijack and this guy's lizard brain is there and he's like survival mindset versus control, breathing, calm, collected, confident officer. He's just holding for dear life. And then someone goes unconscious. He doesn't even know it. And he keeps squeezing. Someone could lose a life because of the misuse of this technique. So because of that, I'm, I'm a proponent for this technique, you know, existing at the lethal force level. Although I do think that it has to exist in every department while some departments are outlawing it completely, which I think is a bad idea um, because it's like you're taking away another survival tool for an officer when their life could be in danger as it often is every single day. Yeah. I also come as, oh, go ahead. I, I was going to say, I completely agree with that. I've actually put someone to sleep using, using it in, in, a, in a situation where someone was getting robbed. Um, and, and it worked great. But like you said, it's, it's got to be trained, right? And in New York, as you mentioned, it was outlawed after an officer used a bar arm, which was crushing, uh, unfortunately killed the, the suspect. And would you agree that it's not the choking itself that's the main issue, but the education on how to use it and when to let go? You said four hours of training every two years. Yeah, certainly. You know, it's the truth. Every technique is only as good as the user is trained. So no doubt about that. And, um, you know, the neck restraint, you know, unlike other techniques of body control and whatnot, just has more serious consequences when abused. That's all. Uh, but, but the same is true for any technique, a mount escape, a guard, punch protection, weapon retention. All of these techniques are only as effective as the user is trained, which is a whole different subject, but, uh, but one that needs some light as well. Another thing that another response that I got from from people who said jujitsu training would be bad for officers was um, uh, I, I heard things like there's no mats on the street. Um, people said you don't want to go to the ground because there could be multiple people. And then the other one was, well, if you're grappling with someone, you're you're bringing them closer to your firearm, to your gun. But you guys also talk about weapon retention. You talk about limb control. Talk us through that. Well, listen, let's let's first think about this. If. Every police officer was never trained in jujitsu. In the course of an arrest, in the course of an arrest, this is important, that the suspect determined not to go to jail, fought with everything the suspect had to avoid uh, apprehension at all costs. What percentage of those arrests would you suspect go to the ground? I'd say, I'd say a lot of them. I'd say, I'd say most of them, if not all. I'd say yeah. 99%. Yeah. yeah. So the point is this, and this is the misconception. People think that because we, we, what we teach in GST is rooted in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, that we're teaching Brazilian jiu-jitsu. We're not. That's why it's Gracie survival tactics, and it's not Brazilian jiu-jitsu for cops. 
So it's a whole different filter on the jujitsu lens. And I don't expect you or Marcus or anyone who hasn't done GST to even speak this language. But it's the reason why BJJ black belts, brown belts, purple belts do GST because they're white belts in law enforcement grappling. They're black belts in BJJ. Some of them are world-class competitors, but they show up to GST and line up with all the brand new students and they're all the same because the filter on the both the philosophy, the principles of weapon retention and distance management, and also when and how and why and why not to use these techniques in a fight is all covered in GST. And the way I look at it is this. The ground, the fight is going to the ground no matter what. It did before jujitsu and it will after jujitsu. That's what happens in fights. Even two people in a street fight who know nothing, they invariably will go to the ground unless someone gets knocked out cold, which is rare, very rare. They'll invariably end up on the ground. These studies have been done on this on many cases. So when it comes to GST, it's not a matter of are you going to the ground or not, or are we going to encourage the ground fight? It's a matter of when the arrest goes to the ground, which it invariably will, because there's no way to control someone standing on their two feet with one or two officers against someone who's resisting fully. You need gravity as your ally. If they're standing, they have too many limbs in the fight. Their feet are planted firmly on the ground. Their fists are swinging wildly, and they're spinning and moving too strong in their base. The way that you eliminate that is you put them flat on their back or on their stomach, preferably on their back. Um, contrary to much law enforcement training is, is taught, you want them on their back. So now their feet are out of the fight, meaning they can't post, punch, twist, drive, run, kick. It's very limited. So you put them on their back. They're like a turtle now. And now all they have is their pushing arms. But even their arms cannot cock back further than the ground because they back up into the ground. So the punch only has 20% power of what it would otherwise have if they were standing on their feet, driving with their entire body and cocking their arm back fully to give that full power in the punch. So you're going to the ground for all the reasons why every department teaches to take the out of the ground during the arrest. That's not the question. The question is when that ground fight takes a turn and now the suspect has the upper hand on an officer, does the officer understand the ground fight sufficiently to extract themselves and get back to their feet in 10 seconds or less? And the question is, it's almost like, it, it, think about it this way. Let's say, you want to learn not to drown, right? You need to learn how to swim to avoid drowning. You don't say, oh, we shouldn't learn how to swim because we should never go in the water. You're going in the water at some point mm -hmm. if you're a cop. Mm -hmm. So the thought isn't, I don't want to go in the water. You end up there every time you arrest someone. The question is, okay, if I end up in the water, how can I get out of the pool safely and tread water until help arrives? That's what we're teaching. You're in there already. It's a matter of getting out safely. Now, what's crazy is an officer doesn't need to be Michael Phelps to tread water and get out of the pool in a safe and controlled manner. They don't need years of training, not with GST. So that's the way we look at it, is who better to teach officers how to safely defend their weapon and their face in a ground fight and subsequently teach those officers to extrapolate themselves and get back to their feet. Who better to teach someone how to get out of a ground fighting, a ground fight, than the family of ground fighting? Who better to teach you how to tread water and get out of the pool than Michael Phelps? So if you want to learn how to stay safe in a pool, talk to the guy who's safest in the pool. So that's the idea. We're not using our skill set. It's almost like the way in MMA, sometimes people use their jujitsu knowledge, not to submit people, but to avoid submission and to impose their ground and pound. With law enforcement, we're using our jujitsu knowledge to avoid submission, avoid being trapped in uncontrolled positions against their will, protect their weapons, keep it in the holster, and get back to their feet, get out of the ground fight, not to get into the ground fight. Anything to add to that, Marcus? And no, I, well, I do because I do get asked a lot as well, just from you know working with force training as well and, and Krav Maga. And I often get asked by police officers, should I do Krav Maga and Jiu Jitsu? And I always answer, you should do both because part of it is from the military stand, you know, from when, when it comes to long range weapons. But just like Henry just said, it will always, if you're an officer, if you're not an officer, you can run away, you can get out of that situation. But if you're an officer, you have to arrest the suspect. And you need jujitsu. Jujitsu is, 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 is everything when it comes to controlling and arresting a suspect. And doing so, there's no safer way of doing it. And this is where I, I completely agree with you, Henry, when it comes to, to New York. There's nothing worse than having politicians get involved in topics they know nothing about. And, and when it comes to self-defense, which it is for an officer as well. We, have, we can't forget that it's self-defense for the officer to make sure that he or she can go home to their families. It's the most ungrateful job on the planet right. to 
everyone hates you until they need you. And, 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 and to, to be able to stay safe on the ground, jiu-jitsu. And, and, and to make sure that, that you can arrest the suspect in a safe of a manner as possible. I work with law enforcement units that, that are told that they don't get self-defense training because it, the, the, the politicians above them, the law, uh, the, the, not in law enforcers, the law makers, uh, think that, that teaching them how to defend themselves is going to be something that's going to increase the, the violence used against the suspect. I'm sure you get the same thing with kids, parents going, oh, but what if they do this in school, if they do this on the siblings at home? Usually the more trained the officer, the more trained the child, the less chance of them overusing abuse because they don't get that adrenaline pump that they would otherwise. So I agree with everything that you're saying. Thanks. Yeah, I agree 100%. Is there anything else? Is there anything else? Like, if we're, I'm thinking from the point of view of people who still aren't sold, is there anything else well, that we can? Yeah, and you said the idea of introducing your gun into the fight, and I agree that you know if someone concerned about oh they shouldn't be grappling, I agree. But once again, when you're in the grapple, not by choice, but by circumstance, your gun is absolutely more accessible. It's extremely accessible. So a police officer. A police officer is, is safer in the ground fight if they would have left their gun in the car, put it that way. So you must know how to be in the context of a ground fight, whether you're on top or on the bottom, and simultaneously retain control of your weapons. And if you're in your amygdala brain and you're just fight, flight, or freeze, and you're just tripping out and you're totally overwhelmed by the fight, you won't have the presence of mind to say, wait a minute, this guy's hands are reaching for my weapon. Let me underhook this arm and walk it up. And now I lock my hands and neutralize him. So when you're that calm in the context of a chaotic fight, you can see everything. It's almost like it's slow motion. But officers who've never been in a fight and don't get the training because they don't get but a few hours in the academy. And then they get, you know, probably three or four hours annually as in-service officers every year. When that's the level of training you're getting and the frequency of training, it's almost as good as nothing, right? So you get into a fight, you're completely overwhelmed. And uh, now your gun is in the fight. And as we know, unfortunately, uh, many officers that are shot in the line of duty are shot with their own weapon. So it's, it's all the more reason why you have to be comfortable with this idea of we don't want to go to a ground fight. No, we learn jujitsu to avoid the ground fight and to be safe while you're in it until help arrives. The way I look at it, it's almost like, it's almost like in the ground fight for anybody who knows jujitsu and GST in particular for law enforcement, because that brings in the weapon consideration and the punches which often jiu-jitsu does not consider strikes even because it's mainly, mainly practiced for a sport. But um, in the context of a ground fight, what officers need to know is where are the positions in a ground fight? Top, bottom, left, right, guard, mount, side mount, back mount. What are all the possible configurations of two people's bodies on a ground fight? This is a basic level what they need to understand. From each of those configurations, they need to understand where the, we'll call it the, 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 the buoy of safety is. What can they do from right there to position themselves where they don't have to escape, they don't have to beat anybody up, they don't, certainly don't have to arrest the guy. All they have to do is avoid the knockout and keep their weapons in their holster. What we do is we teach officers on the most basic level where those buoys are. So that if you're in the ocean and you don't know how to swim, let's say you're a terrible swimmer but you're in the ocean, and where you're, where you're positioned in the ocean, every 10 feet, there's a buoy. It's going to suck. Between one buoy and the next, life is going to suck. But at least there's a buoy for you to go, okay, I'm here. I'm surviving. I'm, I hate being out here. I could get killed by a shark, but I'm still floating, and I can breathe now and assess the threats that are around me and assess what I'm going to do next. And I can at least think in my prefrontal cortex. I can activate that part of the, the rational decision-making if I do this, if I do this, this will happen. If then statements can be contemplated because you're safe. And the number one prerequisite for PFC activation of a human being, law enforcement or otherwise, is the actual or perceived sense of control. That's it. For you, me, Marcus, anybody, cop or not cop, the minute you feel like you lost control, mm. Your PFC is hijacked by the amygdala. So what we need to give officers is not just rooted in physical leverage. It's rooted in brain science. Officers must understand where in the fight 
they have a sense of control and safety so they can go back to rational decision making before they once again try to make the jump from this buoy to the other 10 foot buoy over there there's going to be 15 20 seconds of absolute craziness before they find a new buoy and when they're in those positions of safety they can say okay all right backup is on its way i'm just going to hang tight i don't have to get out i can stay here stay safe keep my weapon in the holster Whereas if an officer doesn't have that buoy and they're on the bottom of the guard, let's just say, contemplate, what are they going to do? That officer is going to feel like they're about to die. And if an officer is in the bottom of the guard feeling like they're going to about to die, then at that point, justifiably, they can use lethal force. Because lethal force is not an absolute determination. It's a relative determination. And the relativity of the justification of lethal force is all based on reasonableness, reasonable force. In that situation so an officer who's threatened and exhausted and has no training and someone's punching them in the face is justified in using lethal force if they felt they were going to die but what's crazy is the same officer in the same situation who has some training and has a buoy of pfc activation and perceived safety and control in the bottom of the fight that same officer goes wait a minute i'm not in life's danger i can hold for 30 i can hear the sirens 30 more seconds they're going to be here and rip this guy off and we're all going to take him in and dogpile him that officer, because of their training, does not have to use lethal force because they have a sense of control and safety. So this is what I'm fighting so hard for. Increased training and lowering level of force doesn't just benefit officers. It benefits the suspects and civilians all over the world. You want to get arrested by a cop who is a black belt in Gracie survival tactics, Gracie jiu-jitsu, BJJ even, because they're not going to feel threatened. Their PFC amygdala hijack is going to take much longer than an officer who gets four hours a year of training so everything we're doing is to increase the level of training to increase the threshold of what level of violence is necessary to trigger the amygdala hijack the higher that threshold the necessity for violence the more the officer can withstand before saying i have to kill this person now i have no choice that's it that's all we're fighting for so everyone says, hey, man, F the police. You shouldn't be teaching them. You're giving them more tools to be more violent than they are. It's like, listen, I know there's bad cops. I know that many cops have great intentions. They're trying to enforce the law. They're just underprepared. So they become mm. bad cops because they had bad training. And that's one of the, the saddest kind of grouping of assessment and judgment that exists for law enforcement is that they are, um, number one, that they're all bad cops, right? There's no LAPD and you know, Chicago PD and Detroit and Miami and Mesa PD, they have nothing to do with each other other than the fact that they enforce the law. Each one is completely independent, number one. Number two is that, you know, when an officer, you know, when you look at an officer and their training, this thought that they actually have Navy SEAL training and these officers are super equipped and they get months and months and months of tactics, it's a lie. It's a lie. I don't know one department that I can think of right now that gives more than you know, on guaranteed training for an officer in the course of a year, more than a week's worth of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu classes here for a beginner in a year. I don't know. Four, eight hours a year is the average, and eight is excessive. Some do four hours every two years. So when this is what we're talking about, and people go, wow, why do cops abuse their power? It's not abuse. In many, it is sometimes, I should say. In most cases, when an officer pre prematurely shoots a suspect, excessively punches them in the face, it's all fear and inability to handle it less violently because they aren't given the tools you know and this of course is considering that some officers yes they use the power they became cops for the wrong reason um you know and there are other concerns and uh but by and large officers who use excessive force do so because they don't have less violent and less uh, forceful means of controlling someone that they're confident in and when all you have is a hammer everyone is a nail you nailed it it's such a good metaphor with the buoy and how to, to, to swim. And, you know, it's so easy with 2020 hindsight. You see journalists and, and politicians go, oh, you should do this, this, and that. And they take exactly what you spoke about out of the context. You mentioned that little thing of stress, adrenaline, and, and, and you just try to play a game when you have a timer next to you, right? Or if you play with charades or something, right? It makes it hard. And here is someone who, like you said, perceived fighting for their life even if they're not and 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 it changes everything and um what you said about the the, the amount of training that that law enforcement get um if it was up to you what would you 
what would you like to see for, for law enforcement? You mentioned different law enforcement. Everyone's different, right? But the amount of training that would be good for an officer on an annual basis. Bro, I think every officer should be permitted one to four hours a week. Realistically, one hour a week. But up to four hours a week if you're a superstar agency who has the budget and cares 100%. But even if officers got one hour a week of on-the-job permitted uh, defensive tactics training, where they just took a lunch break one day, and they went, and they did their lunch, and then they did an hour, and it was on the clock, and they suited up, and they did 30, 40 guys get in there and do one class or one module, very much how we have our, our module structured for law enforcement, a little one-hour block of punch block series or clinching or mount escapes or weapon retention from side mount, whatever. And you start to piece all this together over time, so that over the course of the year, this officer has had 52 classes of jujitsu. Everything changes when you do jujitsu once a week. It's just part of your life. And then a second hour would be double as good. Third or fourth, you'd be one of the most progressive departments in America if officers were on the clock, permitted, and encouraged. And here's the best part, incentivized. If you created a structure, much like the belt system in martial arts, that not even necessarily belts, but some level of hierarchy or recognition or promotion or a paid day off or a bonus that was tied to defensive tactics, skill development and proficiency, everything would change in America in these departments that, that, that enacted that. And it would only be a matter of time before every single department in America just became this hub for the training that what the public already perceives is going on in law enforcement. That's all I'm asking for. Let's do for law enforcement what the public mistakenly thinks law enforcement is doing, which is training one or two hours a week on control tactics so they don't kill people unjustifiably. Let's just do what the public currently thinks mistakenly that law enforcement does. And if we do that, then we'll start to meet the expectations of the public with regards to how law enforcement professionals arrest and control people. Because the expectation will match the reality. But right now, the expectation is that they do this from the public. The reality is they... I can't even go off the screen because it's so low. The reality is so low. I'm like touching the ground over here. But it's this much different. So now there's this disconnect where the public says, wow, you guys really don't know what you're... You guys really abuse your power. And they're over here saying, well, we actually don't even know how to apply our power. Because we're never trained in how to use it without a weapon. That's all I'm asking for. Let them to match give them the training time every week, mandated and encourage and incentivize, and you would create a, a, a revolution in American policing that will never be undone and has always been necessary, but has never been so obviously um, deficient because it was never on camera. Police officers have always been grossly undertrained. The only difference is every interaction is on four different cameras now. That's the only difference is it's more visible. So... It's time to buckle up and to upgrade the training tactics at police departments around the country because if we don't, it's only going to get worse because the public has a right to be controlled and interacted with by law enforcement in a way that keeps them safe and only ever utilizes a level of force that it was necessary, not what was justifiable, not what was justifiable but what was necessary. And this to me is one of the biggest problems facing law enforcement today is there's this culture of highest level of force that is justifiable. So if an officer, if a suspect does a, an officer is allowed, they're always, the question in asking law enforcement is almost always, if they do this, what am I allowed to do? What is justifiable based on the use of force continuum? So if a suspect does a, an officer is allowed to do B, C, and D. If a suspect does E, the officer can do F, G, and H and stay within the legal use of force continuum. But what we're proposing is that if, an if a suspect does E, the officer can still, in many cases, neutralize that with C or D, C, or A, uh, A B, C, C, B, or A. Can, they can go down. You can actually de-escalate with nonviolent control tactics. So even though you're trying to punch me violently, trying to rip my head off, I don't have to rip your head off to prevent you from ripping my head off. I can do it by tying you into a pretzel and laying on you until help arrives because I have the training. And this is the difference between fighting fire, fighting fire with more fire or fight fire with water. And mm. this is jujitsu and this is Gracie survival tactics. 
And to me, once the culture of law enforcement changes from that of a natural escalation tendency to a de-escalation tendency across all of law enforcement, once that becomes the new norm, which can only happen on the other side of better training tactics and defensive tactics kind of training regimens, once that happens, then this whole abuse, police, power, will be a thing of the past because it'll be so rare that suspects will be dealt with in excessively forceful ways because officers will know what they're doing that we won't even talk about it anymore. Well, it'll be something that is 50, 60, 70 years old. And we go, oh yeah, that used to be crazy back in the day. But now cops actually know what they're doing. That day will come and we're at the spearhead trying to make it happen. You always have my support. And that's why we brought you on this podcast, Hannah, because I, I really want people, I, I want this to be commonplace. I want police to be Gracie Jiu-Jitsu trained. And, and I truly believe that martial art makes people better. And I'm talking about martial arts. I'm not talking about fighting. I'm not talking about mixed martial arts. I'm not talking about what you see in UFC. I'm not talking about striking. I'm talking about martial arts, what teaches self-control, what teaches humility, teaches respect, teaches integrity through training. I know, I know that's something that's very important to you guys. I know it's very important to me. And I'm, I'm, I'm on the mission with you. And, and like I said, you fully have my support. And I want to I wanna make it happen together. Thank you, bro. I appreciate the opportunity to come on here and chat with you guys about something so important. You know, we have a lot of initiatives lined up to, to help win this fight. And since these last videos and all the public attention we're getting for this New York kind of outreach and so many people reaching out saying, Henry, thank you for speaking up against the, the policies in New York because no non-police public figures are doing that, right? It's interesting. And what's interesting, I'm not even doing it. Yeah, it's so funny. As I'm not doing it pro-police, that's what's wild, is I'm doing this pro-humanity. Because if we strip officers who are required to enforce the law, if we strip them of their safest tools and nonviolent resources to, of doing that, what you leave them is no option but to use excessive force when it probably wasn't necessary. So I'm like, it's 50-50. I want to protect officers and give them the tools to defend themselves. But I'm looking at the people who are about to get arrested by these officers, especially if you actually commit a crime, right? Like a real, right? You're giving lawful commands by an officer and you're fighting, you're resisting arrest, they're going to arrest you. And my point right now is that it's going to be much worse than it needed to be because of these laws. And I know we lost the fight in New York. It's pretty much under the bridge. And that's that. So now the, my sights are set on making sure no other jurisdictions adopt that bill as it was written. Now it can be rewritten and you might be able to say, hey, no excessive pressure on the diaphragm for longer than is necessary to control the suspect until help arrives or they are in custody. Yeah. Yeah. Just the rewording would have saved 30 plus thousand officers in New York from having thinking about retiring early and quitting their jobs. But no one thought, you know, not on the city council side to reword it to where the, it, it, there, was, there was some scalability. When you speak in absolutes about what officer cannot do in terms of controlling someone and you're not a cop yourself, you just made the situation worse for everyone, civilians and law enforcement alike. So we lost the fight in New York. We're not going to lose the fight. We're going to keep fighting. We have other agencies now more than ever reaching out saying, yo, we need the help. We need the training. And these defensive tactics courses, Gracie Survival Tactics, exist as live one-week certification courses taught all over the country, you know, 20, 30 times a year, week-long courses at departments all over the U.S., and then officers come there, get certified, and then go back with the certification to teach their colleagues. Um, but we also are on the brink of making the entire instructor certification program available online. So an officer who can't travel for COVID or other reasons can go through all the techniques with a partner from home or from their department and demonstrate the techniques, demonstrate teaching proficiency of those techniques online via video upload, the whole evaluation via video. And once we verify their proficiency, of everything via video upload based on what they learned through the entire sequence and series being available online, they can get certified from a distance and get the same certification, same privileges, same rights to teach their department. So now all bets are off. We're going all in to make sure that every department has access, um, regardless of the budgetary constraints. Many people are reaching out to offer financial assistance to sponsor departments that they want to help reach this program, right? So private citizens, corporations are reaching out saying, hey, we want to sponsor one, two, five, 10, 12, 100 police departments. We're going to cover their, their membership tuition. They're going to go through the course and we let the officers know like, hey, this organization or this person is the one who sponsored your department to bring GST and certify those instructors 
so that they could then pass that on. And once they become certified, it's a self-perpetuating machine because a certified instructor can then go on and teach everyone in their department for years to come. So it's, it's now more than ever, it's go time for duration survival tactics. Um, and, and it's a sad thing that it had to come on the other side of such tragedy, you know, but we felt this way for 28 years that everyone needed this. Now they also realize it because of all the tragedies that have unfolded in the media. So um, it, it's really sad that lives had to be lost in order for police to change their ways. That's really unfortunate. But I'll tell you one thing. It's, 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 it's better late than never. And this is so necessary that this is happening. And with all the cameras on every officer every hour of the day, it was only a matter of time before it kind of reached this breaking point. Uh, we change officer policing in America um, or, you know, things continue to just disintegrate at the rate that they have been, which is unacceptable for everyone, officers and civilians. I mean, it's just crazy time we're living in. Yeah. Well, I can't recommend your online training program enough. As someone who is a member of your physical location, Grace University in Torrance, I've trained with you in person, um, but I also love your virtual training on gracieuniversity.com, and I cannot recommend it enough for anyone who's thinking about it. Not just law enforcement either, but anyone can train on gracieuniversity.com. So like I said, it is, it, I've done both, and I enjoy both equally as much. So guys, I, I definitely recommend that you check that out. We'll have a link down below for that. Uh, Marcus, if you don't have anything else to add, I'm going to switch gears, lighten this conversation up a little bit. I, I, I do. I was like, man, I have so many questions I want to ask Canada now. I do have one question on, no more about the law enforcement side, but BJJ, how it's evolved over the years from your dad's vision originally um, to to how Jiu-Jitsu has become its own sport. I think Jiu-Jitsu is closer to becoming potentially an Olympic sport than MMA is, for example. What's your opinion on the evolve, how Jiu-Jitsu has evolved for mixed martial arts versus Jiu-Jitsu in itself? You mentioned it earlier, Jiu-Jitsu being, you know, its own sport in, in tournaments and so on. How, how do you see that involvement happening over, over time? Yeah, it's been spectacular to watch. And, you know, like everything, it'll take so many different forms. And, you know, the, the sport of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, um, it's evolved in one way beautifully into this intricate sport of its own. But in another way, it's kind of devolved away from the emphasis on actual street fight application towards possible, and, and any BJJ school owner will say this and acknowledge this, it's possible that someone does BJJ now, trains for two, three, four years, and in that entire time span, not once be spoken to about the context of this art in a real fight, meaning no mention of actual defending punches from the guard, no mention of closing the distance against a striking opponent. Like, nothing is possible. So in that sense, it's unfortunate because many people are going to BJJ schools because they heard about it through UFC 1, 2, whatever, or seen that someone use it in a fight or a cop use it in a real situation. Then they show up, and what they're learning, in many ways, doesn't resemble what they came looking for. So that confusion surrounding Brazilian jiu-jitsu is, um, you know, is a little bit of a concern. Um, but on the other hand, the evolutions that have happened within sport BJJ are just remarkable. It's like this little petri dish of science exploration of jujitsu against jujitsu has just evolved to this rapid evolution over the last 10, 15 years here. And, uh, you know, and, and, I, and I'm, a, I'm a participant and, a, and an observer and practitioner of some of these evolutions. It's not my primary concern, but I keep an eye on it. Um, but, if, you know, on the other side, our organization, because if we don't do it, it's almost like it will be lost entirely is very much geared towards, hey, this is great. But for the guy who is 44 years old, had his first child, you know, a kid six months old, and now wants to learn to defend himself and, you know, prepare for a self-defense situation in the least amount of time possible, just doing sport BJJ may not, you know, scratch that itch for him. You know what I'm saying? Like, he needs to feel that he's doing something that has a street application, and I think that's something that's being overlooked at a lot of BJJ schools. Um, but, again, everyone knows what they're doing. I just think it's important that the, the, the clients moving into a school of so a prospective student also be informed that, hey, this is, we're practicing Brazilian jiu-jitsu. If so, entirely for the sport of application, one. And, you know, if you want to learn self-defense, there are other elements that aren't as heavily emphasized in this school that you might find at another school. The same way if someone comes to me and says, hey, I want to learn sport BJJ. I only want to compete in sport BJJ. I would say, well, it's probably not the right school. We're going to teach you a lot of things about self-defense and we teach law enforcement and military and, 
you know, MMA fighters and a lot of striking considerations. And our emphasis is on that. So maybe there's another school that's better for you. So that, that, that divide in terms of what is being emphasized at each BJJ school is not clearly communicated to the public. And, um, and I think that that's a little bit misleading to many ways, but you know, I continue my quest of educating the public and identifying these differences in, in the, you know, in different social media platforms and through different videos and educational videos that we make. And it has helped a lot of people and people have come to us and said, Hey, I was training so-and-so for two years and I thought I was learning self-defense only to realize that I was never going to be taught actual self-defense applications. So I'm glad to be here training with you guys kind of thing, you know? And I want to ask on that note. And that's, I remember when I actually started to train on your uncle Hickson and that was grace to self-defense was a big portion of that. Obviously he was an MMA fighter, but on the jiu-jitsu side as as you mentioned, it's, it's become a lifestyle and, 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 you know, you have so many different schools and, and, you know, it's, especially here in Southern California, when you, when you look at it and, and from, you know, from, from coming to the U S or your dad coming to the U S did, did he ever, ever imagine it becoming what it is today? And what is it like to just sit on the sidelines and go, what did we create? Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, who knows? You got to ask my dad, but I can tell you, it's an honor to be part of a family that has had such a strong impact on martial arts forever, right? It's, it's what the Gracie family has done to martial arts through the UFC and outside the UFC will never be undone. And um, I feel blessed, but I feel like I give back to that privilege by committing myself to the mission so heavily um, and it, different Gracie family members in different ways and in different degrees, right? But I give 100% to this mission and to the mission that I feel my grandfather hold most dearly and most closely, which was empowering the small against the strong. Um, with the leverage and technique of jujitsu, but you know, it's my whole life has been like this, so it is kind of normalized. Gracie family, jujitsu is in our blood. We're responsible for a lot, but I don't take anything for granted. But I'm here to keep pushing this forward, and it's a waste of an opportunity if I don't. So I'm very much, you know, consumed by the mission that rests ahead. And I know a lot of people are, are benefiting from our, our work up until now, but there's millions of to me, we haven't even barely scratched the surface. Is what I'm thinking. Like, so I don't rest too much in what we've done. I look at what needs to be done and I'm like always blinded by that. And I forget the past kind of thing. When, when did that become, when did you realize that this was, this was your why, this was your purpose? How old were you? Yeah, good question. I mean, you, you don't have a choice in this family, right? You grew up learning from day one and then 10, I was 10 years old when the UFC was created and then hoisted his thing. And then 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 training, training, training around 19, 20 years old is when my brother and I really set our sights on being the ones responsible for scaling jujitsu worldwide through Gracie University Online, through brick-and-mortar certified training centers, through the creation of scalable and, 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 and systematic curriculums of jujitsu. And that's what we've set our sights on, and that's what we're doing right now. We're 175 locations in uh, all over the world, you know, six continents. And, um, you know, we have 280,000 online members through GracieUniversity.com learning from all over the world. Our Torrance location here has almost 1,500 students just in this location alone. So we, we've kind of cracked the code on how, and now it's just more of the same. We just got to keep pouring fuel on the fire and getting more schools and making sure that this jujitsu always remains accessible anywhere in the world. That's what I admire about you, uh, I truly. Um, you know, I, I love your bullyproof program for, for children, uh, bully victims. You often fly kids out that have been that have been picked on, that have been taken advantage of for, for whatever reason. And I think that is super admirable. I love your women's empowerment program. Uh, and I just, I really do love everything that you teach as a martial arts instructor. But I also look up to you as a businessman, as an entrepreneur. I, really, I know we only got a couple more minutes left, but I got to talk about the quick flip. I know you, you designed a fight tips one and the timing just wasn't right, but I'm, I'm ready, man. I'm ready to make a fight tips quick flip. We got to, <laughs> let's, uh, let's, let's start one about that. This is, uh, 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 Shark T, you were on Shark Tank, and then Time Magazine listed as one of the best inventions last year, 2019. Is that right? Yeah. So that's when it took off. Yeah, Shark Tank last year in May, and then Time Magazine in November, best inventions of 2019. We made the cut. So between those two, and that's like in my second year of business, it's, uh, it's just been crazy, bro. It's just, you know, it's just been a crazy ride. And I, I didn't even mean to start a company. I just was at the park, and I dropped my hoodie because I didn't want to tie it around my waist one day. And then I was so frustrated that I dropped it and I got wet on the grass and I went home. And in 30 minutes, I had my first prototype for, for um, Quick Flip. And uh, six months later, we're in production, made 5,000 hoodies, sold those in 30 days. And then I was like, okay, shoot, we, we freaking struck something here. And now I just, um, I'm, I'm signing a distribution deal with one of the largest wholesale uh, kind of apparel distributors in the country. But here, US and Canada, number one, this monster company. 
So um, it's crazy, bro. Like the way Quick Flip is growing, uh, you know, I hate to say it, but you know, it's, I might in the end, when it was all said and done, be more widely known as the guy who created that hoodie that turns into a backpack than <laughs> Henner Gracie of the Jiu-Jitsu family. Wow. In Brazil. Like, I'm serious. That's that how my mind. Growing. Yeah, it's so, and for me too, I'm like, dude, I've been spending my whole life on one mission and you're telling me that, you know, you know, I'm, my legacy will be set in hoodies, not in this. And I'm like, I don't even <laughs> love hoodies. I just love efficiency, but I invented a dope hoodie. And now it's like, it's this monster business. Luckily, I have a great team helping run that. Um, but it's so wild, bro. It's I don't know if you remember. I don't know if you remember. We were down at the Hamosa Fair. We ran into you real quick. And you showed us this. Like, hey, I just, I just created this. And then I love Shark Tank, by the way. And then I see you on Shark Tank. I'm like, he just took that. I just saw that. It was like six months, maybe eight months ago. I saw that thing, and now, now it's a shark tank. It's, it's, it's what what Shane just to 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 add to what Shane said. It's your mind. It's one thing that you you're able to do something. It's a different thing to have the drive and 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 the entrepreneurship to to say how can I make this bigger? How can I bring this to more people? How can I continue to solve problems? And that's impressive. Yeah, you know, and yeah, execution is, is a big part of it. I thought it would be easier than it was up until this point. I thought I'd be like, oh, I got a great idea. It's going to do just fine. But no, man, it's been a full-time monster since it started. And, um, you know, so now I have this freaking, it's like, it's almost like I got her pregnant on accident kind of thing. And it's like, holy shoot, look what this thing, I didn't expect it to become all this. I didn't expect to be a dad over here with a separate family. Like, it's crazy what happened. I have this Gracie family university, which I run with Hidon and our great team here. And I didn't have time. Like, Jiu-Jitsu needed me enough. And I didn't have time for anything. You know what I'm saying? And then all of a sudden, this happens. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. It actually works. And everyone I show it to goes, oh, my gosh, where can I buy that? And I'm like, holy shoot. So it almost grew like. And then I'm like, okay, I guess I got to run with it. And it's like, you know, I'm not one to, like, give up and not give it a chance. So I kept giving it a chance. And then Shark Tank called, and I'm like, okay, I guess I'll do Shark Tank. And then we sold, you know, whatever, 50,000 hoodies in a, in a couple of weeks there, something crazy. And then I'm like, oh, my God. And then Amazon deal of the day hit, and we freaking killed it there. And everything on top of the next, it's just been so successful that, you know, yeah, it's crazy. It really is. It is really wild, you guys. Like, and I'm not, you know, it's, I'm enjoying Here's what I'm enjoying the most. The fact that all my life, I've been, from an entrepreneur perspective, anybody who's seen any number of my videos goes, man, Henner plays the game, right? Henner plays the business game. This guy doesn't run from it. He's in it. He's all about marketing and selling and promoting and building things, right? Like, we have one life to live, and, like, I'm going to play the game. I just see it as a big video game. I do jujitsu. I play jujitsu. I play business. I, that's it. We're playing the game. So, all my life, I've been, I've been jujitsu. The audience of potential candidates for what I'm selling for jujitsu is one-tenth of one percent of the human population. Let's be clear, right? If you think about it, how many people want to do kickboxing? How many people want to do jujitsu as a hobby? For real. And that means choke and get choked. Like, that's their hobby. I don't care how good of a job I do. I'm only ever going to convince one-tenth of one percent of the world to engage in this hobby, right? So this is the kind of the, the logic I had. Within that population, I'm killing it. I'm going hard, like online, in person, school, on Zoom. I'm doing it all. But the pond is still literally microscopic, right? When I invented Quick Flip for the first time, I was like, dude, I just invented a product that my pond is 100% of humans on the planet hmm. are my pond to fish in for this new product. And what's wild is this product compared to the impact of jujitsu is nothing. It's like, okay, a hoodie turns into a backpack. But compared to the audience that I can fish in and play and play the game with, it's a million times greater audience. Mm. So I'm enjoying the opportunity because I always wonder, like when you see someone who has a billion dollars, and not that we're chasing the money per se, but when you see someone that has had that impact on society, my question is always, how many, how many lives did they change to earn a billion dollars? Don't you wonder sometimes when you go by the big houses and you see a $27 million house and you go, wow, what did that person do for the society to earn that house? That's always my question. 
-hmm. It's not how much was the house. It's how much was the service that earned the house. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking, man, I work really hard and I serve a lot of people, but I'm not in the billion dollar club. And I'm like, what does it take to get in there? And it's one of two ways, right? It's, well, really there's two ways to accumulate wealth. One, oh, there's multiple, but two that I've flirted with. One is life-changing impact for a very niche audience. The other is hoodie around your waist, disaster avoidance impact for the whole world of seven plus billion people. And now I'm realizing how you can play in the big leagues is you got to do a small life improvement for every person on the planet. Because I've done the big improvement for the small number and I know where it gets you and it's nice. It's nice. You buy the nice house, you have the nice things, you enjoy the nice vacations. But to have a small impact on every person on the planet creates a different level of wealth and opportunity. So I'm playing that game now. It's fun. And uh, we'll see where it ends up. I'm not in the billionaire club by any means, but, uh, but I have strong ambitions to, to literally not stop until the world accepts that if it doesn't turn into a backpack, if the hoodie does not convert, it's, an, it's a liability, not an asset. Simple. And we should accumulate assets and rid ourselves of liabilities. So until every hoodie and every closet is, a, is an asset that turns into a backpack, I have work to do. You just took your pond from the Lake Balboa to the Pacific Ocean, and that's where you put your buoy. I like it. That's cool. Well, I feel like we could talk for hours. I know, I know Marcus agrees, um, but we got to wrap it up. So we always finish our podcast with a bit of homework that you would recommend our listeners, whether it's physical or mental or anything at all, something that you think they would benefit as a person, as a martial artist. What do you got? Take your first jujitsu class. There it is. That's it. GracieUniversity.com. It's free. You log in, and we've unlocked over 30 lessons for free, not the least of which are the first three lessons of the program that Shane is currently participating in, which is Gracie Combatants. It's the most effective street self-defense kind of fundamentals program of jujitsu. And lesson one, two, and three are free. If you log in and watch those three lessons and they're not the best thing you've ever done, I don't know what to tell you. I'll give you a free hoodie. If they're not the best thing you've ever done when it comes to martial arts, lesson one, two, and three of Gracie Combatives, you get a free quick flip. Okay, you got to convince me what's better than that in terms of jujitsu or, or martial arts introduction. Anywhere, on any martial art, if Gracie Combatives lesson one, two, and three aren't the premium that you've ever experienced, we need to talk. Um, and then you also have other homework, which is to assess yourself and your closet and ask yourself how many liabilities do you have how many assets? And then go to quickflipapparel.com. Check out our hero hoodie that turns into a backpack and get one of those um, 15% off with the code FLIP15, F-L-I-P-15. And uh, right now, because everyone's locked up due to COVID, and Shane knows this, we're actually doing live Zoom classes for awesome. people all over the world. So literally, we have people in their homes with no training equipment and no partner, solo doing jujitsu and we're going through all of Gracie Combative solo. So if you want to join that, we're doing seven days free for a limited time. Go to gracieuniversity.com slash zoom and you can start a seven day free trial from within your house. You can learn from us like this directly and I can see you and you can see me and you're doing jujitsu. Try it seven days for free. If you love it, you can sign up. We have many program options, but you're actually going to be able to learn jujitsu in a safe, controlled you know, solo setting. And then once you learn the techniques that way and we track all your progress after quarantine, if you decide to go to a school, you'll already have all these techniques under your belt and we can assess your performance. Once you get into partner practice, we can assess whether you know the techniques well. And if you do, you can earn official strike promotion on your white belt. Like everything counts. Even though we're doing it solo on Zoom, it counts towards official progress after the quarantine is lifted and we're back to partner practice. So if you're lonely and solo at home and you want to get active and you've always been on the fence about jujitsu and you're like, man, I'd give that a shot. GracieUniversity.com slash Zoom. Start your seven-day free trial and I'll see you actually in class. I'm going to go teach class right now, uh, the kids' class, and that's why we got a break pretty soon. But um, too much fun. So Grace University, we got a quick flip for the hoodies. And um, for everyone else, you know, FightTips.com, Shane, Marcus does his great stuff there at Systems. We have just this awesome group of martial artists here in Southern California. And I appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate the good work you guys are doing. I see your ad on Facebook, Marcus, all the time regarding personal training. And I'm like, man, I might need to get one of these personal trainers over here to come to my house. Marcus will hook me up. <laughs> so great work, you guys. And uh, all, the, all, the bless, all the best, you guys, all the blessings um, for Instagram and Facebook. 
Henry Gracie on uh, on social media, and then of course Gracie Breakdowns on YouTube is where we yeah. do all that. Which we still need to do a breakdown. You and me, Shane, we got to do some kind of cool breakdown for Fight Tips Gracie Breakdown collab or something like that. We can Please. make that happen soon. Please. Well, truly an honor, sir. Thank you so much. I hope to do this again soon. But I'll see you in a in a Zoom class. We'll be there tomorrow. Gracie Combatus. Thank you, guys. Everyone, stay up. Right. Take care, mate. See you. Thank Bye. you, Henry.